actually that one ninety-eight in the quiet and in the stillness on the topic that we're going to look at today, the story, the solemn story of the rich man and Lazarus. I just love that um, chorus, there is no one else for me, none but Jesus, crucified to set me free. And in the topic we look at today, even though it's a very solemn topic, if you spend too much time on it, um, there is an answer to it. Christ was crucified to set us free. He was crucified to take our sin. He was crucified that we can now have a relationship with a holy God. He was crucified so we didn't end up in the place where uh, a place was made for demons and we were headed there as well because of our sin. He was crucified now that we can walk with him, that we can serve him, that we can love him. So what a great song to start us off crucified to set me free. I woke up this morning, I try and normally beat my wife out of bed. I, uh, did I do it this morning? Yes, I did. But she beat me to the computer. And she checks my Facebook page because she hasn't got one. And as she scrolls down to see what people have put on it, um, I noticed uh, Joel Olstein on there under Chris, uh, church leadership. And the title was, Why I Never Speak on Hell. And I said, oh, no, Kath, look at that. Is that uh, something I should fear? And I actually ended up reading it and why he doesn't um, preach at his massive church um, on the topic of hell. Because it's not, he said, well, it's, it makes people feel guilty. And the gospel is not about making people feel guilty. And I thought, oh, that's funny. Because I came to Christ because of my sin and I felt guilty. And so we're going to look at this topic today, um, the rich man and Lazarus, carrying on from really, uh, as um, Philip said, from chapter 14, 15, and now to 16, that's all one great big um, line where Jesus talks, and he's going in about six parables through these three chapters. And so I just wanted to concentrate on this story that Jesus taught because it's such a one that's not really spoken too often now in our churches. And so we'll read it through, chapter 16 of Luke and verses 19. We'll start there. Jesus speaking this story. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine living, and he lived in luxury every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores who lay at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus by his side. Then he cried, this is the rich man, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, 
Remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us, uh, and between us and you, there are a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes from them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though one rises from the dead. That's our reading this morning. It's interesting, uh, Luke 15 starts off, first of all, Luke 14, he's talking, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And Luke, Luke 15, he is now talking to the sinners and the tax collectors in Luke 15. And also coming al- alongside them are the Pharisees. So he's got his disciples, the tax collectors and sinners, and now the Pharisees have joined in listening to what Christ is saying. It's interesting, though, in Luke 15, just at the start, that the Pharisees complain at his teachings. And it says the sinners and the tax collectors drew near. And what a lovely picture that is. The sinners and the tax collectors were really interested in what he was saying. The Pharisees complained. In John Blanchard, there was two great books that I read on this topic of hell. John Blanchard is one. My dad's got that book. He stole it off me. Whatever Happened to Hell? And the other one is by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. And they're the two books I recommend on this subject. There are many more, I'm sure. But John Blanchard in his book, he starts off, when he was writing his book, Whatever Happened to Hell, starts off this. It seems that hell has fallen on hard times. A poll taken in the US in 1978 Of believers, there was 70% 70 of them believed in a place of torment called hell. Ten years afterwards, only 50%. In the year 2015, only 30% of believers now in the US believe there is a place of torment called hell. So in 30 years, from 70%, to 30. In the UK, it's 24%. In researching his book when he was writing it, he went to the biggest Christian bookshop in Australia. He went to the manager and asked him what or how many titles are stocked in this bookshop on the topic of hell. The manager replied to him and said, none. He said, we used to have one, but it sat there for so long, I gave it away. And that was John Blanchard's experience as he started off writing his book. Another, a professor of University of Chicago Divinity School, Marty Martin, he was preparing a Harvard lecture on the subject of hell. He consulted several scholarly journals dating back 100 years to 1889. 
and he failed to find a single entry on the topic of hell. This was his conclusion. Hell has disappeared and no one has noticed. One volume of a Christian doctrine, nearly 800 pages long, edited by three highly respected Christian leaders, had eight lines on this topic that we'll look at today. And yet, as far as the world's concerned, hell is dead, or certainly on its death, deathbed, the word hell has never been more active or more popular in this world that we live in today. When the Gulf War started, the headlines in America and in England was this, all hell has broken loose. In the States, there was, 50, there was a car pile-up, 15 people killed, 186 people injured. They interviewed the fireman that was at this massive accident. He said it was three miles of hell. Even if you go into uh, our sports arena, at the, the latest um, soccer World Cup, a player couldn't make it for a certain team, and the team said, we'll miss him like hell. And so it goes on, doesn't it? There's bat out of hell, hot as hell. There'll be hell to play as sure as hell and when hell freezes over. These are words that are just common out there now. The word hell is just attached to so, so many things. I took my family over to Raglan in the summertime, summerish time, and it was quite cold and Tom brought a friend and he came out of the water and he looked at me and he said, that water is as cold as hell. And I said to him, actually, that doesn't quite make sense, you know. And so he quickly clicked where I was going. But that's the way the world uses that word. By and large, it has been watered down so much that it seems to have totally lost its meaning. Certainly its impact on the mind and conscience, it hardly affects how people now live. And so what does Jesus have to say on this topic of hell? Perhaps Jesus' most vivid description of hell is found in this story that we have just read. Before I go into this story um, in Luke 16, we've got to understand that our English version normally translates hell just straight off hell. Some don't. Um, New King James sometimes has the word Hades, which is great. But there are actually three different Greek words for this place. And they have three different types of meaning. So the first one is uh, Tartaros, and that word for hell is only found once in our New Testament, only once. It is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, and this is to describe a place where God has sent a special type of wicked angel, and so that's only mentioned once. It's about, if you want to look at it, in Jude verse 6, it doesn't have the word there, but it describes them angels, but if you want to find that word for hell... Tartaros is found in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. The second Greek word is the word we're probably familiar with, and that is Gehenna. It is the most commonly word used for hell by Jesus, used around 11 times in the New Testament by Jesus himself to describe the eternal destiny of those who reject himself. The word Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hidden, which is located the south of Jerusalem, and during the the reign of the wicked kings, uh, Ahaz and uh, Manasseh. Uh, some Israelites offered their children there as burnt offerings to the false god Molech. 
And so they offered him there, and that's called the Valley of Hidden. Later, this valley was used as a garbage dump where both refuge and the bodies of the executed criminals were thrown into. So they weren't given a burial, much like this uh, Lazarus. They were thrown into Gehenna. And thirdly is Hades. Uh, Jesus used this word to describe a temporary location of the unsaved dead as they await the final judgment, um, which is described after the great white throne in Revelation 20. And although technically Jesus was describing Hades in the story about the rich man and Lazarus, we can assume from the Lord's vivid descriptions that this temporary place of torment called Hades only foreshadows the things to come, which is Gehenna, the lake of fire. So there are the three descriptions of hell in our New Testament. There's a wee bit of controversy, if you like. Mainly it's old theologians and younger theologians when we look at the story that we have read in Luke 16. The older theologians say it is a historical story. The newer theologians say that it's a parable. And so uh, the older theologian says there is no parable in your New Testament where the Lord uses a man's name. Therefore, this is historical. The new theologians say that it's not historical, it is a parable because in Luke itself there are six parables and the Lord starts every single time there was a certain man and he does the same here. But for me it it doesn't matter. You can go on about that argument all you like. The line of truth through this, whether parable or true story, does not alter. It alters not whether it's a parable or not. The line of truth here is where people go without Christ and where people go with them. And that's it. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, and I'm sure the Lord shocked a lot of the Pharisees in this one story that he told here. For we know the rich man was a Jew, and we'll look at that later. So you can make your mind up. So Jesus starts off this story. We'll have a wee look in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every single day. Here Jesus pictures a rich man, but he was no ordinary rich man. He was really rich. Purple in that cloth that he had, was dyed in a very costly dye. Anything representing purple means very rich. To dye a garment in purple meant that it was obtainable only from the shellfish murex, which was crushed and would give off this purple dye when it was killed and crushed. It would be used for the outer garment, and the fine linen was the undergarment. And so the combination of both stands for ultimate luxury, This rich man had it all. He was said to have not committed any graven sin, only that he lived for himself. And that seems to be his condemnation. From 20 to 21, in contrast, we have a poor man named Lazarus, which actually means God has helped. It looks like God has not helped him in this case in his life when he was down here on earth, but that's what it means. It says that Lazarus lay at the rich man's gate. That word Greek and gate is portico, which means city or palace, 
once again affirming how rich this man was. So at a gate or a city, this rich man owned, more likely a palace, lay Lazarus. And what did he have? Well, he had nothing. He was, it describes him, full of sores. He desired to be fed, not that he was fed, but that was his desire, and so much so that dogs came around and licked his sores. The contrast, one man had all that he wanted, the other man had nothing. And so in verse 22 and verse 23, they both die. And it's like the Lord just comes right up to the door of death and passes straight through it, as nothing is unusual. No man can do that, but Christ could. He could go, right, now we're going to see what happened to, to these two men. It says Lazarus died, and for him there was no funeral. More than likely, they would have just picked his body up and thrown in him into that valley of hidden, which is Gehenna. That's where he would have been thrown. But it says very unusually in your New Testament, the minute he dies and steps through the doorway of death, it says, Jesus says, the angels became his pallbearers. They came and took him and took him up to Abraham's side. The expression and thought of angels carrying someone like this is found nowhere else in Scripture but here. And it's very, very unusual, but it's very, very comforting. If you have ever been at someone's side and they have died, something amazing happens. We can't see it, but angels come and take them away. How comforting that is for a person dying. And then we have the rich man who died. But even in his death, he was treated differently. He was buried. And you can imagine that funeral, can't we? If he owned a palace and he was so wealthy, well, there wasn't probably papers in them days, but it would have been in the papers. It would have been a huge funeral. And great men would have came and talked how great this rich man would have been. But in verse 23, we see where he ends up being in torment in Hades. Before I go on, I must make it clear that Lazarus was not in heaven, and for Jesus' listeners, the concept of being at Abraham's side, that was the concept of heaven. So before we go on, Lazarus was not in heaven because he was poor. Just as the fact that the rich man was not in hell because he was rich. The Bible clearly states the whole lot when we put it together. Lazarus obviously trusted and had faith in God, and the rich man did not. And so when we look at these two men, we can ask the question, who was the richest in the end? The rich man who had everything but God, or the beggar who had nothing but God? And that is the test of riches. And in verse 24, the rich man cries out. You could say he prayed, and maybe it was the first time in his life that he had ever prayed. And so what does he pray for? He gets the chance here, being in torment. He, we know he can see Abraham on the other side and Lazarus there. He noticed him. He understood who was beside Abraham's side. It was the beggar who was outside his gate. What does he ask for? Well, he asks for that Lazarus come over dip his finger in water and put it on his tongue. But in, 
In essence, what did he ask for? He asked for water, which is odd for me. He was earnest. He wasn't joking. He wasn't messing around. I just need a little water. He felt the need for it, of what he asked for, and he desired to get it. And I don't know about you, but when I read the story over and over, I, uh, I think to myself, that's a funny thing to ask for. Because if you were in torment in the flame, would you not ask for a whole bucket of water? Wouldn't you ask for to go over there? What is the way to Abraham's side? But he didn't. He just asked for a little water. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm not quite sure. But the water is described through Scripture quite a bit the more I looked into it. And so maybe, just maybe, this rich man, now no longer blinded by the veil of flesh as we are on this earth, he saw this pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, as found in Revelation 22. John's saying this in, in Revelation 22. And he showed me pure river of water. And it's the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the, the throne of God and also from the Lamb. When Jesus was on this earth, how did he describe himself? Well, many times through the book of John especially, he described himself as living water. From John 4, he's talking, we know that story hopefully, of the Samaritan woman. And he's at the well and Jesus is thirsty. And a Samaritan woman comes to the well as well. And she is thirsty, but she has a bucket and Jesus does not. But not to go through the whole story, in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. In verse 13, Jesus answered her and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, talking of the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become uh, in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus has that water. And in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never hunger, and who, he who believes in me will never thirst. What was this rich man's problem? He was thirsting for water. And lastly, in John 7, on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me and the scriptures that they have said about me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. This rich man was thirsting. And I think he just wanted what could get him onto the other side, and that was Christ. He only needed a little the faith of a mustard seed would have got him there. But it's too late. It's too late. Just think that the river of living waters will never flow to the depths of hell. 
but they did flow down to the depth of this earth. In fact, why this rich man is in so much torment was now he knows that this river of life had been flowing past his gate every day when he was on earth, but he never heeded it. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, forever, he is reminded of that voice, that one who said, Whosoever will, let him come and take up the waters of life freely. Just a little bit of Christ. Six times through scripture, he is the living water, but he rejected it. A.W. Tozer said, anything can take a man to Christ. Anything can bring us to the cross, but nothing but Christ can take us to heaven. It's our step to move, to put our faith in him, not just to go up to the cross and go, oh, wow, there's a man hanging there, taking the sin of the world. It's a personal thing to take that step of faith and trust in him. And then in chapter, sorry, in verse 25, Abraham replies to him. And look how he replies to this rich man. He calls him son. Son. I, I actually think that's one of the saddest things as I've read through the week, recorded here in our New Testament. He was a man in torment. He was a Jewish man. That's why Abraham called him son. And he was in hell. In verse 27, the rich man calls him father. See that relationship. We can go right back to Genesis 15. And God promised Abraham, go outside, have a look at them stars. So your descendants will be as that number up in the stars. And here was a descendant from Abraham. That's why he keeps calling him father Abraham. And Abraham calls him son. That relationship, that covenant, the old covenant, they should have had. And yet it makes no difference without faith in God. And I wonder at that great white throne, Jesus will say to everyone, he'll call them son because he is the creator. And he'll call them daughter, those who have rejected him. He loved them so much, sons and daughters. Son, remember... Your lifetime, you received good things. The rich man asked for water. He was told to remember. Not only what, just not to remember anything particular, but to remember something. Remember them good things that you had, the good things that satisfied you on earth. The rich man now knows the value of our Lord. He knows that nothing else can save him, and the good things were not as good as he thought. How many people do we know that are going to hell because of good things? They have rejected Christ. They seem so good, and they have nothing to do with Christ, whether it's sport, whether it's homes, whether it's material things, whether it's careers. These are all good things that can keep us from faith in Christ. Last week, I was just talking to Phil, and he talked about um, a guy he, he, he met 
And he said um, he used to go over to mission trips and, and things like that, and, and it was great. But then he got into, when he came back, he got into drink and alcohol, and, and, he, and he found that Friday nights was drinking, Saturday nights were drinking, and Sunday nights were no longer church time, it was recovery time. And whether he has a relationship, I don't know. But has the good things kept him from Christ? What it will be when the Lord Jesus reminds people of the good things that kept them out of heaven. They will not seem so good then, will they? Lazarus received, it says, evil things. But Lazarus, not that he was responsible for these evil things he had suffered, but now the balance is readdressed and justice is done. And notice in all this little story that we have, Lazarus says nothing. The great gulf is fixed in verse 26. It is fixed, it cannot be moved. And the rich man now knows his fate. So from verse 27 and 28, he now prays for his five brothers. The one thing that can add agony to agony of the lost is that being in torment and in hell, knowing that because of your actions on earth, you have also sent your five brothers there as well. And that was his big concern, that his lifestyle did not show what it should have shown faith in God. And Abraham answers him in 29. They have the words, God's word, Moses and the prophets. They testify of one person, and that one person is Christ. And of course, he says, no, just send Lazarus back. They'll believe in one who is raised from the dead. And of course, funnily enough, in John 11, we have a man named Lazarus who Jesus did raise from the dead. And what did the Pharisees want to do with him? Kill him. We have the ultimate one who raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus, of course, died and rose again. And what does the world think of him? They still, as a whole, reject him as well. It will not matter if he goes back from the dead. We have this, and Abraham says that's enough to convince anyone. I just want to end with Francis Chan and his quote. Uh, and he says this in his book, Erasing Hell. The thought of hell is para uh, paralyzing for most people, which is why we often ignore its, its existence, at least in practice anyway. After all, how can we possibly carry on with life if we're constantly mindful of this fiery place of torment? Yet that's the whole point. We shouldn't just go on with life as usual. A sense of urgency over the reality of hell should recharge our passion for the gospel of our Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, didn't he? Knowing the fear of the Lord persuade people to believe. We should not just try and cope with hell, but be compelled with it. And with all doctrine, to live differently in the light of it. In the light of this truth. And for the sake of people's eternal destiny, our lives, our churches, not should be, but must be, free from the bondage of sin, to show the world that we not only love one another, but we love others as well. 
a love that should overflow to our neighbours, to our downcast, to the poor and to the outside us and to our community around us. In other words, we need not to stop explaining hell away. We need to start proclaiming the solution to it. And that solution is only found in our Lord Jesus. He was the one who was telling the story. And he was the one who had the solution to it. The one who would go and to the world, it is, it is laughable, isn't it? That this one, this man, the young man, 30-something, would hang naked on a cross and there take the wrath of God, the judgment. That's what hell is. The judgment and wrath of God will continue to be on you. But Christ took it. And to the world, they can come up to that cross to see a man bloodied, naked, and look at it and laugh and walk away. It's for the foolish, they would say. But to God, it's the way of salvation. And the one who is telling the story is the one who had the answer to keep us away from this place that we have looked at. It is not a place, as the world says, that, hey, all the hard rockers and that will be there and we can party hard in this place. Scripture never tells us that. It tells us that it is a lonely place. It is a place of tears, a place of sorrow, a place of darkness, a place of fire, a place of judgment, a place of wrath. It is no place anyone wants to be. So may looking at this topic of hell, it may... Just take a fresh look at the gospel and what we're saved from and who saved us. And then go out to our communities and do the same. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come before you. What a topic, uh, what a story that is that the Lord Jesus told. And Father, we... You know, we just want our hearts broken as we, as we read that story and contemplate and just wonder what that rich man is going through. If that's a historical story, Lord, he is still there. He is still in torment, and yet it has not even begun. Father, just break our hearts to when we look at when we look at whether it's our neighbours, whether it's our community, whether it's our family. And may we be on our knees in prayer for them. May we shine something special, which is Christ, in our life. That they may just see something different, our Lord Jesus. That we may have the opportunity to talk to them about the solution of life, eternal life. It is so different. One's light, one's darkness. So, Father, this week... Break our hearts as we contemplate this place. But also give us to rejoice in whom we have that has taken us from here. It's where we deserve to go. And to by your side, we can have a relationship. And the end result is to live for eternity with you. So Father, just open our hearts again this week as, yeah, as we just looked at this story. And may it touch us once again, and that we live for him. Thank you, our Father, in the Saviour's name. Amen. Amen.